hamster with a blunt penknife would do it quicker. Okie dokie. Cool. Hello and welcome back to Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, a Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am Dylan and I'm joined by the regular host. Joe, hello. <laughs> Hi. Hello, how are we? We're back again. Very pleased to be here. Thank you for inviting me on. Oh yeah, thanks for coming on your own podcast. It's really <laughs> nice to have you. <laughs> Dylan, um, how was your Christmas? Oh, Christmas, you know, it was uh, a lot of eating, a lot of drinking, a lot of sitting down in the in the lounge, not really doing a lot. Put on about 45 stone, you know, <laughs> you can't go up the stairs anymore. But apart yep. from that, fine. Do you diet every January like me? <laughs> I diet January to November with uh, blips in the middle. <laughs> oh, all right, one year. Oh, sorry, we're here to talk about Dark Invasion of Earth, just to say. Any minute now. We're at episode four and we've had about a, a, a month and a half break since episode <laughs> Just so you're all in the loop, okay? Right, let's just continue our conversation now. Um, Joe, one year, right? Oh, man, I was burned by Doctor Who at Christmas. Because the one thing I I can't bear, I don't collect any Doctor Who figures, right? I've never touched that part of merchandise. Mm. And honestly, the show came back, didn't it? They had a figure of absolutely everybody. Old (laughs) Grandma Donnelly from The Idiot's Lantern. Well, every (laughs) present I opened up was a Doctor Who figure of one kind or another. They all thought I was going to be delighted. I'm surrounded by all these ghoulish figures. I'm like, what the hell am I going to do with these? <laughs> do you know, I, I had a similar thing when Doctor Who came back. Whenever it was Christmas or my birthday, people would buy me any old shit with a logo on it, <laughs> um, which is fine. And I just used to put it in a box under my bed. And then eventually I got to a point, I've got, I've got boxes of this stuff. I, I don't need it. I'm just going to take it to the charity shop. Took it to the charity shop, left it there. Felt relieved. It was, you know, Doctor Who adventures and Dalek cookie cutters and things like that, and destroyed Cassandra and stuff like that. Oh my god, that was the worst. <laughs> anyway, so I took it to the the shop, and uh, a few days later, my girlfriend at the time says, "Why don't you uh, come over? I've got a present for you." I was like, "Oh, really? What?" And uh, I went round, and she'd gone past a charity shop, saw <laughs> all this Doctor Who stuff, and bought it back for me. <laughs> Did you tell her? Yeah, I did. I was just like, <laughs> no. you're not going to believe this. There's a reason you've not seen me with this stuff. It's all been under the bed <laughs> for oh, years. God, that's the saddest story featuring destroyed Cassandra. That I've ever heard. <laughs> Fucking nerve of bringing out that frame and saying it's a character from Book Two. <laughs> oh, that's genius. Um, well, since we did the first half of this, I've received the Blu-ray of season. Me too. And I've got to say, they polish up pretty well. They do, they do. I've kind of found a newfound respect when I went in for episode four, um, which we're about to do at the moment, of just like how sparkling and wonderful it looked. I may have even reappraised Richard Martin as the greatest Doctor Who director of all time, or not. Um, that is a hell of an epiphany. <laughs> what you said in episodes one to three. Actually, you know, do you know what? We were... Uh, small caveat, we, are, we have had a, about a six-week break since uh, recording episodes one to three and we may repeat occasionally what we said before <laughs> i've heard i've heard back what we said in the first half of this exactly uh, so you're going to just tell me to shut up if i start saying something i've said before never be so rude honestly <laughs> I would. Um, but um man oh man that was a fantastic set but the, yeah. the the extras are just getting better and better aren't they i know they're wonderful I was a bit. I was a bit sad to see William Russell. William Russell's interview. Uh, I mean, I know he's getting on a bit, but you know, it just. It was, I think I said on the last one, it might have been a hard watch, and it, it definitely was. was a hard watch. But you know, he seems very well. 
I, I didn't get through it all. I, oh. I've, and I actually thought it was a little bit in bad taste putting it out because he clearly was being prompted an awful yeah. So it was less finding out anything and more can he actually have a conversation. And that's whereas the Moran mm. O'Brien one I thought was oh brilliant, really revealing, you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh it's just a bit of a shame that I mean he's getting on. He's how old is he? 96, something like that. Yeah. So if, uh, if I'm in fine shape like that at 96, then I'll be quite happy. Yeah, yeah. Me, me too, me too. But if anybody out there is really interested to see a visual interview with William Russell, I would recommend his Myth Makers, which is a real, it's, you know, him probably in his late 50s, early 60s, and it's a real insight into his Doctor Who career and his career up to that point. It's a, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, to quickly uh, again mention Maureen O'Brien, one of the small gifts I did get for Christmas was one of her novels. Oh. She does mention in the thing, Dylan. I couldn't get past page three. <laughs> the first scene featured a woman getting moist down below. <laughs> Not self up. It was absolutely boring. Absurd. I was like, "What is going on?" <laughs> Mickey wrote this anyway. Yeah, I'll, I'll absolute it. filth. When I bring this out, I'll put a little still of what the book is in case anyone. <laughs> I know the regular audience to this thing. <laughs> Are you not going to do a reading of a couple of chapters and just tag it on the end? I don't think you could handle it, mate. Honestly. <laughs> you might need a bit of alone time. All right. <laughs> on that note, should we head into episode four of Dalek Invasion of Earth? Yeah, let's do that. When you count us in. Uh, so in five, four, three, two, one. I actually do have a question for you straight away to stimulate the conversation. Well, that's the only way to learn, isn't it? Um, <laughs> the Daleks. Yes. What was your first experience of the Daleks? And did they like capture you straight away? Uh, so my very first experience of a Dalek was before I knew what Doctor Who was. Uh, and I, it, this is kind of like a half memory that I don't know whether I remember it or I just remember my nan telling me that we went to some sort of fair somewhere and there was a full, there was a life-size Dalek, someone in a Dalek there, and I just ran away from it, petrified. So that is my first experience of a Dalek, and I know it was before I'd ever seen Doctor Who. Wow. Um, okay. But but the first time I ever saw them would have been, I think it was Day of the Daleks on VHS. And I don't think I ever found them particularly threatening in that guise. I think when you get to the 80s stuff and like Resurrection, I think I was, I think Resurrection and Remembrance, I probably found them a bit more scary is the wrong word. It was the the only Doctor Who I remember really being scared of was the Haemophores when I was a kid in The Curse of Fenric and the Destroyer in Battlefield. But no, I don't think I ever really, I don't think I ever really had the Dalek fear. You know who scared me most when I was a nipper? Nurse Lamont from Terror of the Zygons. Oh, yes. You remember being fucking chilled by (laughs) her scary eyes and that blood going down her arm. There was a time in in mid-90s. And bear in mind, you've got Star Trek being churned out, X-Files, all this really polished TV, where I thought Resurrection of the Daleks, Revelation of the Daleks and Remembrance of the Daleks were the most exciting, stylish and polished television you could ever possibly get. (laughs) Because they are. They absolutely are. Um, so anyway, what's occurring in Dalek Invasion of Earth? Well, they're just pouring some acid onto a bomb. Now, a uh, little bit of trivia here. When they're in the studio, they're with one version of the bomb. And now they're outside when the bomb's dissolving. When they're put, Because it's a polystyrene version that they're just pouring some something on that makes it dissolve. So it's, cut it, it's quite a complicated production, this one. 
Um, but yeah, obviously the best way to stop a bomb is to pour acid on it. Apparently, I've not really heard that technique. <laughs> I don't Only think any, any, Terry Nation. Yeah, don't think any bomb disposal squad will ever tell you that that's the best way to get rid of it. You know, there's a, quite a bit of tactile touching going on here between Susan and Dalvin. There might be something going on here. Yeah, there might be. I mean, I, I do think the the script and the characters just about sell it. Although I'm not sure how I would have felt about um, being left with my first ever crush. Um, <laughs> just in a time that I didn't know. Dumped on the planet, yeah. Yeah. May I suggest that you don't go and read John Peel's War of the Dalek. No, hang on. Legacy of the Daleks. Yeah. To see what occurred with Susan uh, after this story. I, I vaguely remember it. Pretty terrible. <laughs> yeah. Haven't they done a big finish audio as well so after this? Yeah, they've done one. I think it's called like After the Daleks or something like that. Um, which, you know, I'd be quite interested to hear it. I'm sure they've done it with a little bit more tact than uh, old John Peel, who never does anything with much tact, I don't think. No. Although, didn't he write the Edge of Destruction novelization? Did he? Uh, maybe he did, yeah. Oh, but... that's Nigel Robinson. No, yeah, yeah, yeah there we go, there we go. Completely... John what... Peel wrote Master Plan, right? In, of the that's right, novelizations. Yeah. yeah. In two parts, yeah. Mm -hmm. One thing we did say in the first half was how nice it was that each of the regulars had their own sort of contemporary character yeah. and storyline going on. I think it does add a bit of pace. We get to go from Barbara and Jenny, uh, yeah. Susan and David, Ian and, I don't know, the fellow at the mine. <laughs> just happens to be yeah. the fellow from Are You Being Served? Yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah, exactly. Do you know, I really, I, I think I ship Jenny and Barbara. I think there's like, the, the the anger, there's some real sort of sexual tension between them. Uh, so and you know, it's twenty twenty one fifty or whatever. So Jenny's probably a very uh, open woman, while Barbara from the sixties would be far too reserved for any, any of that business. We just cut away before all that stuff happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what they're doing now. While the Ian is jumped out of a spaceship. Well, uh, we go back to them. They look more knackered. And <laughs> <laughs> now this stuff here, where they're kind of cutting between studio footage of Ian and you've got a Dalek that's just possibly got stopped on a bit of rubble there. But you've suddenly got all these extras being pulled along by pulling along this train and stuff like that. It's like, this is really epic stuff. This is the Doctor Who equivalent of Ben-Hur. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look how many extras. We never get this many extras usually. But they've got the camera on top of there. And like, I, so I think last time I said how white everybody was. Mm -hmm. Um but apparently they did try and get kind of multi-ethnicities multi for the extras and they just couldn't find anybody in, in the biz at that point, apparently. I don't want to say anything in politic, but, you know, they're all slaves, so of course they try. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right. Again, um, Richard Martin is directing the hell out of it. on like, Yeah. It looks fantastic. Like, and they've got all those skinny old men at the back. So it looks they look like they've been worn away from being in this mine for a long time. And I think as well that cut between studio and location is less obvious than it is yeah. in some productions. Now, is is this because we because it's been cleaned up, or if we've been watching the DVD version, would we know? It's like it's it's really like I just sitting down to watch episode three on the restored thing. I was like, this is a much smoother 
production but is, is a lot of that restoration i don't know i know they've made some tweaks occasionally because i remember yeah. in the chase they made some there's a scene on iridius where it goes from day to night and they did some tweaking with the, the to make it less obvious that it was a light going off and things like yeah. that um uh, this this stuff or the stuff we've just seen which is clearly stock footage of cable cars and mines and stuff like that that nobody knows where that footage is from they know it's stock footage but no one's ever been able to to, to source it so in theory they could get sued for using it at any point but they won't i bet you someone somewhere out there has done uh a montage of every bit of stock footage ever in doctor who <laughs> it would be that that volcano from the inferno credits going over that <laughs> space rocket that goes up every now and again like in the android invasion as you know things like yeah. that but you know it has a bit of context you know, they, they, you know those buildings that fall down in enemy of the world when the they use that a couple of times as well yeah. too, you know I don't, I don't like much. No, me neither. As it, it helps us with this old TV. It's about what helps sell the story, not necessarily what is the most realistic, like bit of footage or effect that they can get. So it doesn't bother me. It's just it's like in theatre where you cut to a bit of stock footage and stuff like that. It's just selling selling the story. And I think as well in a season where there are they're trying to do some pretty epic stuff, the Web Planet, you know, the Chase. It, they may not succeed, but they mm. are trying some ambitious stuff. I think sort of visually, in terms of location work and sets, this is the most successful that they do. They yeah. they cover a vast amount of ground, sort of geographically, with yeah. lots of different sets and lots of different location work. And if you can imagine, just looking at this episode, it's a tiny. They've got this tiny studio. And we're seeing a corner of kind of a, the spaceship. Um, and then we're seeing that, that, what is the garage or the transport museum, wherever it is, and and then a bit of a sewer, I think it is. And then trying to make, sew that together with location work and stock footage is just like, you can imagine how small that studio was and thinking we've got room for four sets. How do we make this it's damn enough, thing work? I think it's enough yeah. to convince you, you know? It is. It is. And then you throw in actors giving this a bit of willy and yeah. you that this stuff is going on. Yeah. I'm sold, unfortunately. Hey. Like we said before, the camera is very often over the action and things like that. So you've got to try and squint to see what's going on. Yeah. But everybody here is selling selling it because none of them is get, giving a heart. You know, when you get to things like the Space Museum, perhaps in Galaxy 4, you're a bit like some of these people are giving it their all and perhaps some of them are not. Yeah, the regular. Uh, the regulars are giving it their all in the yeah. That's it. <laughs> do you know, I do get distracted sometimes when somebody I recognize from and so, so vividly from another yeah. show is in Doctor Who. Yeah. Oh, that's Mr. Rumble. That's how Juggy is from <laughs> Grace Brothers. I know. I know. It, the thing is, even as a kid, like watching this on the VHS for the first time, I was like, he's from something else. Like, but it's it's when you see like a comedy actor out of sorts, you know, you see William Russell in something else, you just go, oh, well, he was the leading young man at the time. But this is like you you don't belong in the show. <laughs> you you you're are you being served only? It would be like I don't know, imagine Molly Sugman turning up as Jenny, you know, the gorilla. <laughs> <laughs> it would be very strange. Do you know what these sequences though in Dalek Invasion of Earth twenty one fifty AD with Ashton, the black marketeer, then yeah. Favorite, but it's Philip Maddock, isn't it? In the movie, yeah, it is. It is. Do you know? I remember when I first saw this version. I honestly, I remember the quality being so bad of the video that I just thought it was Philip Maddock again, and he was the only cast member they they, they carried over. But of course, it's not. Um, it's a terrible copy, honestly. 
<laughs> I had a few copies like that, you know. Yeah. I used to have a, a dodgy dealer up in Scotland. Oh, nice. I'd, I'd send him 20 quid in a post and a VHS would turn up with all seven episodes of Doctor and the Silurians. Oh, do you know what? I I had a few people like that. And over lockdown, I digitised all my old tapes, including some terrible, terrible, like, seventh generation Doctor Who videos. And while I didn't watch them, it was quite funny to skip through them and just go, like you can't it looks like a snowstorm you can't tell what's going on in any of them but uh can i just say right the scenes here between barbara and jenny are ace in the bechdel test <laughs> yeah yeah they are in the 60s now i'm telling you now there's a many a hinchcliffe story in the 70s yeah fails that miserably absolutely and this look this shot here of uh just Jenny popping out and seeing the the dead Dortmund lying in the road, like again, Richard Martin is firing on all cylinders in this episode. It feels like it's taken him three episodes to bed in, but uh, is this the bit in a minute where we get the crocodile down in the sewer? Yeah, this oh, the, this <laughs> it's really it's really <laughs> the, the tiniest crocodile you could possibly imagine. Is that uh, stock footage? I think uh, it, yeah, it was a film insert, so which I assume was stock footage. Yeah. But uh, I like it in terms of world building that all the creatures have gone down into the sewers. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very Terry Nation survivors. You know, you've got plague and scavengers and black market traders and creatures in the sewers. Like, he revisits these ideas later on. Terry Nation is a sort of Dan Dare writer. I think he's got a black art when it comes to getting out his pen and writing Doctor Who. He does some pretty dark stuff. He does. He does. I think, you know, if you remade this now, it would be a very dark, dark story. And I think still think it's dark for the time, but I just think people often confuse how something is delivered with the intention of what the original script might have been. Like, I mean, Paradise T- Towers, God bless it, I love it, but you can also see a very dark version of that with exactly the same script and just a different director and different actors. You've only got to put on that David Snell score. Yeah. And I know it's all like the same overdone performances mm. and things like that, but it, you you're sort of halfway there to that yeah. much darker version of that story. Absolutely, and then you lower the lighting a little bit, and it just it becomes something else. You watch like the first episode of Survivors and the first episode of Blake Seven. Yeah, that's about as bleak as TV gets. Yeah, absolutely. It's this like, is leaning into that, isn't it? That sort of it is. fatalism. It is a hundred percent. Now we get uh, Babs and Jenny on the now. This is blissful. All of this stuff. It's fantastic now. The tax disc on this vehicle, uh, listeners, I don't know whether you spotted this, says 1965. Now, we think this is set in 2150, 60, something like that. So that vehicle's a couple of hundred years old. Well, it's in a museum. Wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, but I'm surprised it's still, uh, I'm surprised it's still going. This looks incredibly good. The, the shots through the window of the van going towards the yeah. Daleks. Yeah, I mean Barbara couldn't be any cooler. She's she's yeah. got a van and she just smashed for a bunch of Daleks. Yeah, she's the full action hero. It's fantastic. And then and I know like to us you can see oh we suddenly cut to we're in the studio and it's clearly not moving and it's the camera moving to the stunt version on location. But in 1964, 65, it's 64, isn't it? It's 64. I remember, but they're watching on those yeah. tiny little TVs. Yeah. Well. No one would have noticed. This would have been the most epic thing they'd ever seen. Well, it, it did annoy me a little bit, you know, on that Series 2 Blu-ray. 
um, the behind the sofas because I thought that actually they were not making any allowances at all for the mm. fact that this was being made in the 1960s. And yeah, TV's moved on a great deal since then. But actually, in the terms of the 1960s, <laughs> this is really impressive. Yeah, it is. It is. And it's, I mean, it's very easy to poke fun, which we will and have done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and as if on cue, there's the saucer. Um, but yeah, I do think you'd have to make allowances for it. But I do find on a lot of those behind the sofa things, not only do they not make an allowance for, say, 60s effects, they also don't make allowance for modern stuff. It's like a lot of the 80s actors seem to be stuck in like this kind of limbo of like, oh, well, television now is weird. And it was very funny back in the day. And yeah. the 80s and 90s were the best time, which I'm not sure exactly rings true. But there's sort of like a, a a weird sort of knowing mocking at it. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it it seems a bit distasteful for me. Like you find people that are gonna look at its strengths. You know, mm. I love Maureen O'Brien sitting there watching it all, laughing her head off, saying, "Isn't yeah. this wonderful?" You know, my my favorite one I think was probably watching Sasha Dewan watch Roger <gasps> Delgado, which was awesome. Amazing, fantastic. yeah. He's uh, going, oh. That's how you're supposed to play the master, is it? Well, yeah. play it. <laughs> and if you watch him power of the doctor, he brings it down a bit while he's yeah, playing. He does. he does. And then um who other ones? I, I quite enjoyed Colin Baker watching season 24 as well. I thought that was Yes, because he quite watched nice. Paradise Towers, didn't he? He said, I'd love yeah. to have been in this. Yeah, and you could see him in his you could see Colin's coat. Colin in is in his got all different guys is just chewing up that dialogue. Can I ask you, who do you think is the most successful guest character in this? Like in terms of performers and in terms of writing? I, I mean, I don't think it's David as much as it should be. I think it's probably Jenny because you've got this. She's a victim of trauma from whatever's happened. Her family are probably dead. I think they might even say, say in the early episodes, she's been through a hell of a lot. And I think it's delivered well. It's written well. I think, you know, she's fantastic. What about you? I think, as ever, Bernard Kay is giving a performance above and beyond <laughs> what yeah. is expected from a Doctor Who story. I think he does it in Colony in Space. He does it in The Faceless Ones. He yeah. does it in uh, The Crusade later this year. Um, and there is a proper sort of world weariness. Yeah. Is it Tyler or Wyler? Which one's Wyler? That's 2150 AD, isn't it? Yeah, it's this is Tyler. Tyler. Uh, Jenny's got her... Uh... <laughs> A balaclava back on. Is that that's because she is did she dye her hair or something? Or something like that. I think that was uh, that was what they said. It's all very odd. Um, and that's a backdrop there, isn't it? Look at that, look yeah. at those pieces. Yeah, yeah, and just that little post box that was in the corner when they, they, they first came into shots. It's just everybody's proper thought about how they're gonna try and make this huge story that's in a in a tiny space. Oh my god. Look who uh, it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, can I? Can what a guy! I, don't worry about the sliver. God. And uh, is it Nick Evans who plays him? This fabulous camp bloke who's on, on an interview on the DVD <laughs> goes. So you know, I, I, I was told by Dickie Martin, come and do a bit of work. So they <laughs> unveiled this Dalek thing, and I had to play that for three episodes. And they were like, "Oh, well, we've got a bit of extra work for you." So they unveiled the sliver. <laughs> anyway. The press, who are hot on Doctor Who at this point, because it was so popular, the press turns up at his house and says, mm. can we interview you about the sliver? And he's like, wow. 
I don't know fucking anything about the sliver. Like, do you, what? Anyway, thought they're going to give me 50 quid. Come in. And he comes in <laughs> and he feeds them all his bullshit about the sliver and has his picture taken and everything. I thought, oh, go on, Nick Evans, get a bit of money out. <laughs> Amazing. Do you know, the, the slither was conceived as a, a floating black jellyfish, which uh, isn't really? quite what we get. But um, it's... Oh. Do you know what I can never work out? You know, they can, they can hear that screaming outside. That's all. Is, the... uh, is it supposed to be the slither or is it supposed to be the slither's victims? They're never quite... I mean, it's Richard Martin, so we're never going to know, are we? <laughs> <laughs> that was a fantastic slither or slither victim impression that you did, though. Oh. <laughs> yeah, very. It's a bizarre noise, isn't it? Yeah. If Big Finish ever revived the slither, I'm sure oh, they probably you. have actually. But uh, you can s- do the no, voice. the sliver has been in a Big Finish. Yeah, it must right. have. I mean, you know, there ain't one stone that I ain't uncovered, have they? <laughs> <laughs> They've raped and pillaged the entirety of classic Doctor Who. <laughs> <laughs> Bless them. They have, they have. So we've got our black market trader, um, not Philip Maddock, unfortunately. But, uh... but this this feels very termination as well, because in Survivors, yeah. there's lots of characters like this that are exploiting the situation that you know nine tenths of the world population are out. In yeah. Blade Seven, you meet lots of sort of dodgy characters like this, don't you? Yeah, black marketeers, and like they're, they're usually the most interesting characters. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Patrick Troughton plays a sort of a nice black market trader in one of the episodes of Survivors. But he dis- I think he's killed in like literally within the first 10, 15 minutes, something like that, which is a shame. But uh, it's always and he's not see. Ashton's not really around long enough to make much of an impact here. No, he doesn't get blown up though, like uh, in the other one, I think. Does he get exterminated? I can't remember. But it, it just adds another layer that there's not just people that are reacting to the Dalek invasion. There are some people that are exploiting it as well. Yeah, yeah, um, which is, which is what people, which is what would happen. I think Terry Nation does have quite a cynical view of humanity and what people are like, and you know, people accuse him of being quite a basic writer, but I don't think that's true at all. I think he, I think he really gets characters, but he's uh, he's interested in writing the darker side of humanity, and sometimes perhaps the script editors of Doctor Who don't necessarily want that for a kids Saturday tea time show, and that's where you end up with the Keys of Marinus and stuff like that. And you start on the Keys of Marinus, right? Marvaroff's just downstairs. That's one of his favorites. <laughs> no, it's one of my favorites too, but I'm not going to phrase it as a work of genius. <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed. Um, <laughs> In fact, you know what? Like he once when we were talking, we were doing a commentary on the Android invasion, and he gave a such a brilliant reading as to why Terry Nation was his favorite. Because he doesn't want Doctor Who to be madly experimental and things like that. He loves sort of when the show leans into the cliches. You've got the companion and the Doctor wandering a location in episode one. Yeah. The Daleks are revealed. That's absolute like this. That's not meat and potatoes, Doctor Who. That's golden Doctor Who for yeah. him. I, I, and absolutely, I mean, everybody's got their favourite right. Oh, here's the uh... <laughs> tiny crocodile. <laughs> yeah, like if I saw that in anywhere I was, I think I'd be like, I'll be all right. <laughs> I don't think I think I'm going to get eaten alive. But like, she is hanging off a ladder at a great <laughs> height there. So I, I think yeah. for once, Susan's got the right to be a little bit nervous. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, for once, for once, it had to be <laughs> the last story. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Vicky would have been great in this, wouldn't she? Yeah. What she was like starting that revolution in the Space Museum. She'd have yeah. been there rallying the troops. She would have kicked that crocodile in the face. None of this Susan Malarkey are getting a bit too scared of it. 
She was. She, no one would have needed to shoot at the. I like the fact they shot at the crocodile. I can't imagine a crocodile being scared of a. Maybe it was the sound. I don't know. No, a scream. No, the crocodile yeah. would go running, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask you a question about your personal life? You can indeed. Have you? Oh, you suddenly put that out then. Um, have you ever been seduced with a wet, slippery fish? <laughs> I'm not a big fish fan, but um, I... <laughs> it's not I'm a bird. <laughs> <laughs> no, a, a big uh, wet, slippery fish has never quite done it for me. But uh, you know, who knows what will happen in the future? You know, you never know, dear. <laughs> I said, oh bloody! Look at that! What the hell is that? Is that the sliver claw? I think. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes, it is. Yeah, it's or I mean, we don't know what a slither claw looks like, it could be his penis, you never know. <laughs> oh, Jesus, boy, just grab that man. So he's, he's, he's in for a hell of a time. I'll tell you, <laughs> we're heading into Hills of Eyes territory now as they're dragged off into the bushes <laughs> by inbreds. I mean, I don't think you see enough of the sliver for it to be a truly terrible monster. No, I know. It, oh, oh, but here we go. I think we're seeing more of it than we've ever seen before due to the restoration mode. Like the way it sort of shakes and things like that. Yeah. It, they're trying, all right? <laughs> I mean, it, shaking hand reminds reminds me of my alcoholic uncle. So, uh, you know, that, that's all I'm saying. That, that, that's how he carries his glass of gin. Does he shake his <laughs> penis at you? Uh, <laughs> he, he hasn't, no. But, uh, you know, like he says, you never know what's going to come in the future. <laughs> <laughs> Um, oh, I don't quite know where to go from there. Um, <laughs> so that was that was episode four, and yeah, that's usually a point where you're in a bit of trouble with a six par because you've done all the establishing stuff and you've yeah. sort of added a bit. I thought that that was just doing a lot of world building, and it had a few fun set pieces in it as well. Yeah, no, I think I I feel like this is ramping up now. Like I feel like the action's getting more exciting. That was a, like a thrill of a chase through London. We got we got to meet. We got to meet a monster. Like, it was all very exciting. We didn't even notice the Doctor Who wasn't there himself. That's the first time I've realised. You know, yeah. we're at the end of the episode. No Billy to be seen anywhere. I wonder if uh, the ally will wake in the next episode. They often do. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, should we go and watch it? Let's let shall. Let's do it. <laughs> well, shall... Okay, you have... Uh... Dylan Rees to thank for this very brief excerpt from Maureen O'Brien's Every Step You Take, a John Bright novel, uh, which wound its way into my home this year. Okie dokie. So he gave her hands back to her, placing them carefully by her sides on the bed. She took a sharp breath and her questioning gaze made George shyer still. He longed to express his ardour with smooth grace, like her, but was sure she would find him clumsy or worse, ridiculous. Avoiding her eyes, he unwound her legs from his waist, placing her little soft feet... Placing her what? Oh, placing her little soft feet side by side on the rug. He started to remove his clothes, turning his back to her to hide his wildly tumescent state. Tumescent? Shyness made him clumsier. His clothes stuck to him. At last, in just his underpants, he sat on the bed, his big hands between his thighs. His mother had laid out his pyjamas on the bed. 
Oh dear. He hesitated. Should he put them on? He dared to steal a look at Marge. She was standing now, with her back to him, at the other side of the bed. She was pulling down on the zip of her white satin dress. So instead, he got into the bed and covered himself with the daisy-patterned duvet, dressed only in his underpants. Then Marge turned to face him. She let the dress fall slowly off her shoulders. Her body rose inch by inch from the descending cloud of white. George, astounded, thought, standing by me at the altar, she had nothing on under her long white dress. Her small feet stepped out of the cloud. She looked at him. Her smile was uncertain. Will you like me? Am I too bold? But she walked proudly towards him, just the same. He lay still as she got into the bed and she lay beside him. Minutes passed. George waited. He knew that Marge too was waiting, that she expected something of him, but he was frightened, excited, shy, fearful of causing her alarm or shame. She was so small too, and he was so big. At last, certain she would be crushed under his weight, he positioned himself awkwardly on top of her. And the rest, you filth bags, I'll leave to your imagination. <laughs>